0: On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters.
1: Hey, got the good
0: it's 8 past 11 on Sky Sports Radio. Time's one of my favourite segments of the week. It is called Monday's Experts, and it's an opportunity where we find out the story behind the name. This name is very synonymous with Sky Sports Radio listeners and 2KY listeners, Richard Friedman. Of course, you heard not only on the airways for many, many years with the Big Sports Breakfast, but on Triple M, Channel 7, and also before that when he was being interviewed as a member of Team FBI and in before that in his own right as a trainer. And I'm fascinated to hear about his story and journey and also about what's next as he is in partnership with his son Will Training at Rose Hill. And he joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Richard. Dave, good to speak to you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. It's always nice to to hear a, a little bit about, to, as I said, the story behind the name. I want to take you all the way back to where you were born. So you were born in Yas? No, no. Born in Sydney. Born in
1: Sydney. Born in Sydney. Went to Yas via Kaiama.
0: There you go. The, and was that yourself? And well, were the, all the brothers. No, that, that
1: was my. That was the family. The old man was a builder in Sydney, and then he decided he wanted to go fishing. So he went fishing for two years at Kiama. <laughs> and, and then he decided he'd go back to building. And then he decided he, he moved to Yass and build a thoroughbred stud. He's, so, he's, he's quite a bloke. Yeah, so how,
0: did, how does that come about, obviously, in terms of um, your father wanting to do that? Was there ever a, an interest in thoroughbreds before um, the uh, move? Yeah. My great-grandfather was a, a very, well, champion jockey. He rode three
1: Melbourne Cup winners back in the around the time of the the uh, First World War. You know, 19, I suppose, early the early teens in the the 19s, so and, uh, that's and Bill, then through to the
0: 20s. Bill McLaughlin,
1: yeah, midget McLaughlin. He is champion jockey, rode winners all over Australia, based here at Randwick, and his his wife, my great grandmother, had a, had a big influence on my father. So. They, you know, that's where the interest in him was. He, he probably wanted to be a racehorse trainer, and in those days, you know, he, his old man wouldn't let him. said, it's not a real job, which he was probably right too, and he might still be right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, I guess, that growing up and then eventually moving to Yass, what was it like being in Yass as a young fella?
1: Well, see, we weren't originally country boys. We'd been born, you know, in, in the city and went to school in the city for a period of time up here in Sydney, and uh, and then went to Yass to to live on a farm. But, you know, we were there for most of our upbringing, so we pretty much became farm boys after that. And uh, in about 1983, we all decided... uh, The old man was getting a bit... He wasn't really very healthy very well. So we all decided that, you know, we had to do something to earn some money. So we'd... uh, Lee and I were both at uni. I think Anthony had just left school, and Michael was still at school. And... um, We, um, you know, we just decided we'd be race horse trainers. Trained a winner with our first starter in Canberra
0: and thought, oh, this will be easy. (laughs) And the rest, I guess, is history. What about uh, keeping you back in, Yas? I mean, you mentioned that obviously racing a bit around the family, but uh, I know that in discussions we've had away from the radio, you know, and I've come to the stables to maybe see a horse. I've got a small share with you guys. I'll be honest, I get quite nervous and you say just get in there don't worry about it get it th- like these horses but that uh, learning about the animal because you're obviously you know being at the farm but also not being at the farm before the move to yas was were horses always around was there that fear of horses or did it take because it seems like the whole family and maybe it's just a, a generational thing of of being around the horse you've all got a knack for being around them and and, and knowing what to look at
1: well we 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 were when the old man um went to kiama he bought some Acreage down there, and um, we used to go down there even when we were living back in Sydney. After the Kyama episode, um, we, we used to have ponies down on that acreage, and we go down and ride these these ponies and get thrown off, and you know it was break bones and things like that. So, you know, it was, we've been riding horses since we were very little boys, and um, then when we went to Yass, it was just full on. You know, we were riding show jumpers and riding track work for the old man because he had a he had a license and he and it were, you know he used to train a few race horses himself and he used to strap them so so it was a long apprenticeship before we got to the training stage we We'd done plenty of horsemanship of all different sorts three day events um you name it we we'd done it
0: yeah eighty three was when you opened that Warwick farm stable,
1: yep. Oh, that was. I didn't go there initially. Okay. We had more horses than we had stables at the time in Yass. So I stayed back and, and uh, worked on the ones in, on the farm at Yas and sent them up to Anthony and Lee, who moved into an apartment in Liverpool. And it was a learning experience for them more than me, I guess. <laughs>
0: and then, but I guess it was a, that would have been, did that interest you, that uh, being there on the farm? And I guess, what is it, like a pre-training capacity?
1: Yeah, well, that's sort of how it worked out. And then when we were you know, starving at Warwick Farm because everyone was starving at Warwick Farm, um, the, the, the old man said to us, you know, you've got to get to Randwick. we well, said, yeah, well, fat chance of that. There's a waiting list there a mile long. He said, oh, you don't know. he Ring him up and ask him. So we've, Lee rang up and said, hi, my name's Lee Friedman. Oh, I'd like to train at Randwick. I think they just hung the phone straight up. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so he said, well, there's only other one place where, where you'll thrive if you if you want to do this. You've got to go to um, to Flemington. And I'd never even been to Victoria in my life. And the next minute we're going to, we bought an old block of stables out of the money that we won on the punt on sitting ball. And uh, I'm moving down there to live, not knowing anybody, not ever having been there before. Wow. So I went down and fixed up the stables at uh, Fisher Parade at Flemington. And then sometime later via the Wagga Carnival, Anthony and Lee turned up with the horses.
0: It's extraordinary. We're chatting with Richard Freeman this morning on Monday's Experts. When I had Duff on this morning on Punters Post board, he said, you might get four or five episodes out of Richard here, which you never know we (laughs) might because there's a lot of ground to to cover. So tell us about 1985. So we're talking the 80s here. So 83 Warwick Farm, 84 was the move to Flemington, and 85 you bought into Malabar Park Stud? Uh,
1: Yeah, it was called that. That's right. It was called that, I think. Malabar Park.
0: Um, and you renamed we, it Brackley renamed Park. It Brackley why Park? did you rename it Brackley oh, Park? I don't know. I've got. Can't. <laughs> just decided that <laughs> was a know good name. not why did that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous,
1: but I, I can't remember why. But we did. So I, I couldn't remember that it was Malabar. You're right. Um, yeah, we bought that because we knew we were running out of space at, at Flemington. And we knew you had to, you know, we had to move horses somewhere else. So we put a track in at, at uh, Brackley Park there at Avenel, just, uh, just outside Seymour. And. Uh, my mum, we moved my mum into the house. My dad had died by that time. Um, he'd been dead, you know, a few years by then. Um, so we moved our mum into the house there, and uh, and uh, that's where we set all our horses to Spell and pre-train, and Superimpose was pre-trained there. I think Mahogany and, you know, Scalacci mm. went there, and all the champs went there.
0: H- how much of an impact, I mean, it has an impact on every family, but when... Your old men did pass away at the time this was all happening. Like it was, you were you were making some pretty big life decisions as a family and as a group of brothers. Was it was it really did it really affect um, you guys t- to the core? And I well, guess also I- even spur you on even more. You know how you when when that something like that happens and you're in that phase where you're in a um, a dream building phase and something like that happens. Yes, it's very very sad, but it also then go you go right. I'm going to go that extra gear because. We're going to do this for Dad.
1: Uh, we, we, it's, it's amazing what, what uh, hunger and desperation will do for you, how motivating that can be. Um, you know, we were living on 50 bucks a week each, you know, training you know, 20 racehorses or something like that, doing all the work ourselves. Um, I was riding the track work. Um, you know, Anthony and Lee were on the ground. And, you know, we, it's, when, you, when you don't know where your next feed's coming from, that's pretty motivating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got to tell you. I don't know that many young people out there have had that experience and I don't wish it upon them, but it, it is very motivating. It focuses you on, you know, you've got to move and move quickly
0: and take risks, and we did. What are some of the risks that you took that now you you look back and go, well, they, they paid off?
1: Well, I remember one time, it was about 1985 or 6 or something, we bought a million dollars' worth of yearlings. Now, in 85 or 86, you can, uh, you can imagine how many yearlings that was and how much debt that was. Uh, and Englishes were, were either magnanimous enough or crazy enough to, to put us on the credit. Yep. And, um, you know, we had a million dollars' worth of debt and we had to sell off all these yearlings. We got about, about... a big. I remember we had a big open day up at the farm and we were going to sell all 14 of them or whatever they were. I think mm-hmm. we sold two. And we, we looked at each other and said, well, it's been a good run so far. It's probably over now, you know. we we'll yeah. just get bankrupted and that'll be the end of that. And I remember my mother, who was a marvellous old matriarch, and, uh, you know, Miss Adely, she'd passed away a couple of years ago. Um, she, uh, she, said to, she sat around the, the dinner table with us and we were whinging and moaning and, you know, how it was all over and all that. And she just stood up and said, you weak bastards, we thought we were going to get some, you know, some sympathy from her, but we got nothing. You know, we got, you weak bastards, your father would be ashamed of you. Get on the phone on Monday morning and sell those yearlings. And you know what? We worked our ass off and we sold them. And we paid Inglises and, uh, you know, to their great credit, we racked up a heap of interest, which we couldn't pay. And they said, "Uh, you've done a good job, boys. You'll be right. They didn't ask us for the interest, which was great.
0: Did Miss... I think they have subsequently so. yeah. did, did, did Miss Clipper come from that particular group of horses? Of course, she was the first group one winner, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, I don't think she did. She she was given to us by a, a, one of our first owners, a guy called Bob Moreland, who uh, raced a, a couple of horses. M- Mrs. Mannering was another one. I think you know, old people like me all remember. And um, anyway, she look. She was she was a very nice filly and you know we went it took her over to the Australasian Oaks in South Australia and she won it so it was a you know it's a big step forward when you train your first group 1 winner
0: and then obviously we roll into what 89 the, the year i was born you win your first um as a team as an fbi team your first melbourne cup first of five melbourne yeah. cups i mean uh, that was uh, terrific talk us through that moment and and the lead up to that particular event and i mean for a bloke who'd never been to victoria what only five, six years beforehand, that's extraordinary.
1: Yeah, it was it was a bit of a, you know, a dream start. I remember being there on the day and we, 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 you know, we had chances, Superimposed was in the race and he was always a chance in whatever he ran in, even in a two-mile race, he was he was a chance because he was a proper champion. Anyway, we um, Super was, I think, I don't know if he was favourite, he was close to favourite or somewhere there about, single-figure odds, and we thought, well, maybe our Super can do it again for us. Anyway, we had terrific in the race. Who, you know, he was sort of a, an emerging stayer, but he was long odds. I think he was thirty-three dollars. And uh, you know, coming down the straight, could see old Super was going to put himself right in the race, and he got control of the race with about, I don't know, a hundred meters to run. And we, were, we were just, our eyes were glued on Super. Impose just cheering him home as he got the better of one of Hayes's horses. I think the horse's name was Kudz. Anyway, he he got the better of him. We thought we're going to win this cup. And then I could see something starting to rocket down the outside, and I'm thinking, we're going to get rolled. We're going to get done in the last couple of strides. And it was our other horse. So, uh, you know, it sort of tears turned to joy very quickly
0: then, so we ended up cornelling the race. One thing I love hearing about the stories is that uh, all of you had seemed loved to punt, or the a few of you. I mean, was that, was that something that you, you mentioned about, you know, your last feed, um, you're always chasing a quid. Was that something that became vital in those early years about, you know, have, having a punt as brothers and, and, and backing the winners, getting well, a good we got steam? Our first,
1: we got the deposit on, on and most of the money from our first stable from one big punting kill. So we were all a bit, you know, we thought we were a bit invincible. And, you know, as young people do, yeah, we used to have a bet. But pretty soon we worked out that the way to to make money in horse racing, it, it, all the trainers used to bet then. It was about the punt, you know, Um most of racing was about the punt, but we figured out if we trained the most winners and had the most horses in work, we'd probably make the most money. So we started doing things like, you know, helping the journos with their stories instead of hanging the phone up on them and not talking to them. And, you know, the, the press became our friend. Mm. And we're the only trainers in Melbourne who, you know, befriended the press. And we used to take them out for lunch and half write their stories for them. And, um, and we just got more and more publicity and then more and more horses and more and more winners, you know?
0: Yeah. We're chatting with Richard Freeman this morning on Monday's Experts. Richard, what was it like, compare winning a Golden Slipper to a Melbourne Cup?
1: Um, oh, look, they're both thrilling races. And, look, things have changed. In those days, back then, when we're in the you know, 80s, 90s, the Melbourne Cup was no doubt the biggest race. The Melbourne Cup stopped the nation. And what they've done to it since, you know... I lament, but that's a, that's a, that's for a whole other show. That's part two. <laughs> yeah, that is true. But, um, you know, uh, w- w- winning the Golden Slipper, that sort of came about by a couple of breeders saying, uh, we don't really want to send you these well-bred yearlings because, you know, you're very good on the stayers and the middle distance horses, but, you, you know, the two-year-olds, you, you really haven't had much success with. So we went, ah, OK. So we said about... You know, watching the guys who trained a lot of two-year-old winners, Angus Armanasco, um, you know, Tommy Smith and all that thing, what they did with them. We started doing similar things with our two-year-olds, and next minute we've we've won four Golden Slippers in a row, and I think we've won about nearly as many Blue Diamonds. I can't remember the stats, but I think we've won five well, between the brothers, and this is post-breakup post as well, but between all of us. I think we were five Melbourne Cups, five Golden Slippers, and I think about eight or nine Blue Diamonds. I, that one, that one, I'm a bit rusty on, but I know it's more than the Golden Slippers.
0: Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, the stats from from Team FBI. Let's talk about uh, the breakup. Um, you jumped into the media uh, career. What what spurred you into that particular role? I mean, we just hear a little taste in of that. You were the only stable in Melbourne at the time uh, dealing with the media. So obviously, you had a an appetite for getting involved with it.
1: Yeah, I, I started, I was asked by Graham McNeese to start doing the Sunday morning show at, um, at, at uh, Sky Racing. And um, I think it was even called Racing Retro then. And, and I said, yeah, I can do that. said, so Sunday morning, I'll just go to the stables and what time does it start? And they said, oh, nine o'clock. I said, yeah, it'd be fine. I'll get there for that. So I started doing that. And, yeah, I got a bit of a taste for it. And then Graham rang up and said, you know, I was sort of got to about the end of the, two, the, end of the nine 1990s and I was a bit you know we were, we'd won basically everything and I know that seems you know big headed but it was true and we, we all had our own families by then which brings its own pressure you know you've got yep. more people involved and I was just getting a bit you know jaded with the the, the system just thinking well maybe there's maybe there's more to life than just training racehorses. so Graham said, "Why don't you try out for the job as breakfast host on 2KY? We're looking for someone." So I auditioned and got the gig, and thought, "Okay, I'll do that for a while." So I moved to Sydney, and you know, did that for 15, well, probably best part of 20 years.
0: When you said to uh, the rest of the family that this is the path you want to take, what was the initial response?
1: Uh, I think, I think I told Lee first, and he went, "Ah, oh, okay." <laughs> yeah. That's about the, the that's about the whole reaction from any of them. I think people think we were, you know, like a, a band of of brothers. I'm not sure we were the, exactly your your model brotherhood. We were, you know, we were sort of we we're very much individuals and and all had our own fairly strong personalities. So we we, we were very good working together, but we weren't. We weren't much. We weren't as good away from work. Put it mm. that way,
0: and, and that's fine. I think that's just family. I think that's a lot of families. I mean, everyone's and, and it's really interesting too that you, you know, at the time when the stable starting, you were probably all. I'm presuming here, um, single, so uh, or most of you were single. So you know, you four young brothers, winning money. This is all exciting, but as you said, once you incorporate, you know, wives, children into the mix, it it, it becomes different. You all start going uh, down separate rivers.
1: Well, yeah, you, you, the pressures on each one is different. Yeah. So it's not like you, it's hard to be a team when when you've got you know the team expands by double and and all all the you know the four corners are sort of got different aspirations and pressures and things like that. It does tend to put. It puts pressure on the team. And at that stage, we're young. You know, older people might know how to, and certainly, you know, with with the benefit of wisdom, might know how to manage that better. But we were just young. So we thought, you know, young, invincible, you know, do this for a while, do that for a while. That, you know, it, it just sort of went like that.
0: You were at 2KY for a long time with Terry Kennedy. Then you jumped into a role with the ATC. You were in the administration world. What was that like? Awful. <laughs> um, I, got, I shouldn't got laugh. Thought, I shouldn't laugh, but no, I, I no. just love how you just awful.
1: It was. I, I don't know that time at the a, AJC. It was then yes. um, they were running out of money, and you know there was a lot of pressure on the AJC.
0: What made you jump had, into it then? Because um,
1: it, it just seemed. I uh, I always said to myself, if I don't get to a to a, a big commercial radio station in the space of five years. Then I probably should do something else, you know, because 2KY is quite a niche station, and 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 while it was great fun, and I appreciate the time I was there, the you know I, the idea was then to get to a, a station where you could do something more than that. Yep. And um, and it sort of was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. So the offer came along from the AJC; it was the money was good, and uh, I thought, well, I do know that business, and I I knew the, the the racecourse maintenance business, because we had a company that did it, which was doing it at the AJC at the time, and uh, that added its own level of pressure. Let me tell you. Mm. And um yeah, anyway, I, I took that on, and, and Norman Gillespie was the the CEO at the time, and he wasn't a racing person, so I guess I was sat there to um keep an eye on racing matters. Darren Pierce was there at the time; he was the head of commercial, so you know we sort of worked together and with Norman did our best but 6 months after I was in there I thought this is not for me you know this is you know answering answering to a board of I think there were eight or nine people on the board and you know you get in there and talk about racing and they talk about it for hours with with great enthusiasm you you go in there to talk about money and you know how to, how to make the club make ends meet and it wasn't so that that wasn't such a popular conversation, so no. I thought I gotta get out of here anyway, as it turned out um, yeah. I'll tell you, I can't tell a story on air, but I was very pleased to, to get a call one day saying, oh, I think we'd better talk about your position. I said, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're chatting with Richard Friedman this morning on Monday's Experts. Richard, what about working uh, back in the media for Seven and obviously your Triple M uh, role as well? Uh, great rapport and, and great chemistry with Ray Warren on air. I remember listening before I even started here at, at Sky and Sky Sports Radio to, to yourself and Rabs. Um, you know that's the opportunity that you were craving wasn't it and I guess that opportunity eventually found its way to you yeah I guess I worked for
1: all the networks except the ABC I worked I did shows for nine I did uh, I did I started off during the Melbourne Cup for Channel 10 um, and then Channel 7 and you know I did stuff at Triple M and I've probably worked on, I've done appearances on Fox, worked on every network except the ABC. They barred me. But, you know, I wasn't, wasn't displeased about that either. But, because uh, I had plenty to do. So that went on for a while. When I came back from the AJC, I was working at Sky Racing and 9 and 7 and, you know, spots at 10 and Fox and all that sort of thing and making a nice living and doing a fair bit of travelling and, you know, getting the kids through school.
0: Your son uh, then comes to you uh, one day and says, right, Dad, I'm going to become a horse trainer. That conversation, well, he went into, I mean, that, that's obviously a very simplistic way of how it un, uh, unfolded obviously i'm talking about will here um and you've got your obviously your other children as well which are, are doing their studies and, and have their careers in their own right but will uh, f- for those that don't know and he's mentioned on this program uh, obviously they went down a, a music path and possibly could have gone down that music path but then he did the godolphin flying start and then once that was over he was right uh, uh, the horse trainings we're going to do this does what was that like for you because obviously you knew the ins and outs of the game in terms of running a stable etc etc so you've jumped back into it i'm sure that i'm fairly sure we could safely say that if he wasn't in the racing game you wouldn't be doing what you're doing right now
1: it's possible um he he actually he actually came to me after he did a thing called the mongol rally uh which is driving an old car from london to ulaanbaatar in uh in mongolia through you know eastern europe and all sorts of places. This is while ISIS was roaming around killing people, so it was a fairly stressful time. He, he didn't think, seem to think it was so stressful. He nearly died in Mongolia because um, he's, um, I think, his public knowledge, wills a yeah. type one diabetic, and he nearly he nearly died there from a, a hypo. So, you know, he came back and he, you know, it's been a bit of an epiphany. He said, I think I'll just want to train racehorses, and I thought. I've just wasted about three hundred thousand on your education. I could I could have sent you to you know you could have, you could have gone to the local school and been a horse trainer, but that's what my dad said to me and Lee and everybody else. But anyway, he um, he said I said you sure because we've never really encouraged you to do that, and he said Yep, I'm sure. And that's when he went to Yarraman for uh, a period of time. He was working for Arthur and Harry Mitchell up there at Yarraman Park, and uh, and then. Then he came back and got into the Flying Start program, which was wonderful, and saw the world and came back. And, you know, uh, I, think, I think at that time, uh, Michael, and Michael was going to... His pathway was going to be through Michael's stable because mm. I wasn't really training. And then Michael went to Hong Kong, so he thought, oh what do I do now? And I said, oh, well, we can train some horses. And then I I got the taste for it again too.
0: Yeah. What do you think then spurred him on? I mean, that's very interesting, the fact that um, yourself and Sally, you didn't jam it down his throat and say, this is what you must do. Go and see the world. Go and do what you want to do. You mentioned the education as well, and I'm sure a lot of his mates that went to that school aren't horse trainers. So why do you think he came and found that path again? That's kind of... um Bit of intuition, or no, I don't know. I think blood. it's in the blood. Yeah, hard to get it out. It's been get, been there for a hundred years. Yeah. So you know, how do you go with the thought processes of Will and yourself um, now that you're training together? Because I've seen you two in action, and obviously you've got all these years of experience. You've got um, you know your thoughts and beliefs on on horses and how they you know should be trained or how they performed in a race, and then obviously Will brings that next-gen flavour to it. So at the start, was it quite interesting? Well, at the start, it
1: was, was, was a lot easier because, you know, I had probably, a, you know, 45 years of training racehorse knowledge and Will had none. So that, <laughs> then it was easy. I was making the decisions. But as he's got more and more expert at it, it's become more and more of a negotiation. And sometimes they're, they're civil and every now and again, they're not so civil. But in the end, we always get to the we always get to a unanimous position mm. but like all family it it can take a bit of you can take a few bruises along the way but you have to expect that and he expects it and so do
0: i do you think the greatest moment you've had together training is that performance at the magic millions of that uh, that 3 year old which we now see of course in hong kong fashion legend uh
1: yeah i suppose that is he, he um you know he's winning a winning a 2 million dollar race and particularly for will because i wasn't I was away. I was overseas at the time when he won it. And uh, so, you know, he'd done everything right and worked with Brian Smith up there in Queensland who had the horse in the yard up there and, uh, you know, the, between the two of them. See, Will bought that horse too. It was very special for him because he bought that horse. Mm. That is a yearling. And, uh, you know, we had him all the way through. So, it, it, yeah, it was very satisfying. Uh, but, you know, racing, that, that's, thats that you can glow... You can bathe in the the glow of that for about a week. Yeah. And then you've got to be on to the next one because that's the expectation.
0: Exactly right. We're chatting with uh, Richard Freeman this morning on Monday's Experts. Richard, um, this could be a part three. Uh, (laughs) Next question. But you no doubt have seen a lot of the social media chat about racing in the future. And obviously we see Racing Victoria wanting to throw... Uh, different ideas on the table about uh, our product and and that innovation. What's your opinion? Not so much on what they want to do, but as a sport, uh, do you see us in a in a situation where, you know, uh, my children, will's children's children, well, will racing still be around in your mind, or do you believe that we need to really shake things up for the future?
1: There's no doubt racing is under pressure. Um, any sport that that involves animals is under some pressure at the moment. And um, we have to just be very mindful of that. I'm not one of these people who who just goes, you know, anti-animal activists, anti... They have their place. They actually were right when those horses were being mistreated in Queensland at that abattoir. They were right to be angry about it. And I think that's... I think you've got to... You, you can't just ignore them because they reflect a large... Segment or cohort of the population, and if you 're going to keep engaging with people you have to you have to manage that well. you know the people talk about you know managing your social licence and I think racing has to do that, and I think we are doing that a lot better than people think we're doing. I think what what 's been done in racing racing New South Wales has done to provide retirement farms for horses to fund a secondary market in the off track thoroughbred I think that 's brilliant the off track thoroughbred because what that will do is people in Australia, now that we're pumping money into the off-track thoroughbred for prize money, will say, well, why would we get any other breed of horse except a thoroughbred? Because with a thoroughbred, you can take it to a show and, and, you know, win all your costs back. And I just think it's brilliant to create that secondary market, and we've got to keep doing that really vigorously. Um, Will racing be around? It depends how well we do that. I once said to Peter Volandi, and I'm not... I don't think I was telling him something he didn't already know, but I said our whole future depends on how we treat the horses, and I still believe that.
0: Richard, what about uh, yourself? Um, have you got a timeline in your mind on how how many you know mornings you want to be waking up at at three two thirty in the morning? Continuing, is there a moment when you hand the key over to Will and say, "Right, mate, you've you've done your uh, not apprenticeship, but you've you, you're on your own now." Uh, I think I've been threatening to do that since the nineties. You know, it
1: is, it is a ridiculous, absurd way to train horses, getting people out of bed at 2:30 in the morning, in the middle of the night to train horses. Um, there's no need for it. You know, people say, Oh, it gets hot in summer. Yes, it gets hot in summer. Um, we had a place called Markdale where they used to start when the sun came up and finish when they finished. And that was, uh, that, that, that worked well and horses do race in the afternoon i don't want to train horses in in huge heat either but you can surely train horses till 10 o'clock in the morning even on the hottest days Mm. and make sure they go into a nice cool stable and you know hosed off and that sort of thing so it's a ridiculous thing it's the most expensive labor-intensive way to do it jammed into a three or four hour window on a on a you know every day of the week six days a week um the amount of labor you need to do it in that small window is absurd and labour is costing a fortune now, and we can't get staff anyway because no-one wants to work those hours. It's, a, it's something that has to change. Mm. I, I hear all the older trainers, I'm one of them, but I don't think I'm, I'm of the, the same mindset, that it can only be done that way, can't be done any other way. Well, I never believe people who say, oh, can only be done one way. Lots of things can be done a different way, and they will come around. Once it's forced upon them, which it, I think one day it will be, yeah. Um, within three months, they'll be saying, "Oh, we should have done this sooner."
0: Do you think that, uh, and I mean, obviously, infrastructure is a big thing. But do you think that uh, if you go back and if you go back in a time machine, uh, we would have gone down a Japanese route a little bit earlier as a uh, as a country in training, or is it just because of, and I mean, meaning that um, you know, only a certain amount of horses in those racing locations. Farms, large farms out of the city A rotation of horses More often uh, so A lot of those rotations done on farms Or training done on farms Outside of a city area Obviously with different training times, etc
1: I think we're seeing the start of that now um, You know, Chris Waller's building An off-course an off course facility uh, Karen Mars building an off-course facility And already has You know, a, a country-based facility In Ballarat um, I think you'll see all the the bigger stables going that way. I know that uh, Chris Lees does it that way, largely. And I think even the smaller stables will have to head that way because training horses in little circles in the inside of racetracks, it's great for their education while they're young, but then they get pretty jaded about living in, you know, a little box and in the city area when the alternative for them could be, you know, perhaps being turned out in the paddock for the afternoon every afternoon. And, you know, for their, their mental health, I think, the, the country atmosphere is, is far better for them you just have to get the standard of surface and that sort of thing right and uh and i, and I think there'll be major advantages in it
0: richard before i wrap it up mate i appreciate your time uh, this morning on sky sports radio i know our listeners have as well there's a lot of text coming in on the text line uh a couple of questions first off if you were standing in front of an 18 year old richard friedman what advice would you give him
1: uh do you really want to be a racehorse trainer because it is a tremendously hard hard job there's no job security there's no income security um the hours are horrendous uh you'll have to live your life as a racehorse trainer which means you won't be going out on a friday night and you're probably too tired by a saturday night as well um the pay won't be very good unless you strike the jackpot uh will only be probably 50 people of trainers at the top of the game who will make a decent living and the rest will be eating the paint off the wall. Um, Really, there would be easier ways to make a living. But if you're determined to do it and it is your passion, well, I guess there's no turning back.
0: And the second question and last question, what's the one race you want to win with Will before you do get to sleep until seven in
1: the morning? Oh, well, you know, the simple answer would be the next one. But, but uh, the look, there's there's any number of races. Who wouldn't want to win an Everest or yeah. a Golden Slipper or a, you know, or a Golden Eagle or a Melbourne Cup or a All Star Mile or all these races that have a lot of them brand new. Who wouldn't want to win any of them? I mean, I would just be happy to win one of them at any time.
0: I hope you do. Great talking with you, mate, as always. Thanks so much for joining us on Monday's Experts and uh, looking forward to catching up with you soon.
1: No problem. Thanks, mate. Bye.